Welcome back, listeners, for the third episode of Circulating Spaces, Literary and Language Worlds in a Global Age, a podcast dedicated to exploring what it means to engage with literature as a global community. I'm Christian Howard. I'm Samantha Wallace, and we're your hosts. Circulating Spaces is an experiment coming out of the University of Virginia and the Public Humanities Lab, generously funded by the Institute of the Humanities and Global Cultures. So what's going on with you since our last episode, Christian? Well, I went to a conference at the University of Dallas, which is actually where I did my undergrad, so I got to catch up with my old professors and stuff and see the campus again. They made a lot of improvements. Um, does, so, it, yeah. does it make you feel old to like see that things have changed since you've been there? Yes. Yes, it does. But... But Not yeah. to, like, hit you with a heavy comment or anything, <laughs> but, like, my, the library at my undergrad is no longer there, and I'm kind of afraid oh. to go back because I don't want to feel... Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, I gave, I gave a... <laughs> yeah, right? I gave a talk uh, in the same room where I gave my talk for my, my senior uh, uh, final project, right? And it was the first time since I'd been there since giving that talk, and it was very strange. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. <laughs> but, yeah, it was great. Life goes on. Yeah. Without you there. <laughs> So how about you, Sam? What's up with you? Um, yeah, I just got back on Tuesday night from um, OpenCon 2017, mm-hmm. which is a platform for young scholars and early career researchers to learn about open access, open education, open data, open science. Um, and that was held in Berlin this year. Awesome. And it was great. Yeah, it was incredibly inspiring to be around all these people who are working so hard um, to make these little advances um, for everyone uh, who uses scholarly research um so exhausting i'm really ill and jet lagged <laughs> like exhausted and energized and feeling good so well that is super cool <laughs> yeah uh it really was um and i'm i'm hoping to do a circulating spaces episode next semester on um, open access issues nice. yeah. um but in the meantime uh, if anyone has questions any of our listeners want to know more um shoot me an email and i'd be happy to talk so Fantastic. today's episode is on digital spaces and we're talking with you, our very own Christian hey. Howard, and also UVA alum and head of graduate programs in the Scholars Lab in UVA's library, Brandon Walsh. So, Brandon, we hear you think a lot these days about <laughs> digital text analysis, open <laughs> access publishing and resources, and digital pedagogy. So, we're really excited to have you on the show and really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming, Brandon. No, it's, it's great to be here uh, as I squirm while you read my bio. <laughs> verbatim fact I think <laughs> it was kind of cheekily written so I was like yeah I'm just going to throw it right back at him and see what he has to say um, need to edit that out no no way <laughs> uh, so Brandon could you tell us a little bit about your role as head of graduate programs at the Scholars Lab and how you got to this position uh, sure do you want me to say what the Scholars Lab is also yeah, or? yeah definitely uh, so the Scholars Lab is a uh, digital humanities center in the University of Virginia library um, which there are several such centers at UVA, but we're the one that focuses sort of primarily on uh, graduate student research. Um, and do you want me to also define digital humanities while I'm doing this? You're or is that roll. a separate go, thing? Go, it's sort go, of go, all yeah. tied together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Just don't burn through our questions too quickly. I'm going to burn through them all. <laughs> <laughs> Done. 15 minutes so or less. Maybe we'll, I'll bracket what digital humanities is exactly for a moment. Um, but my role as head of graduate programs is to... Uh, oversee a lot of the pedagogy that we do in the Scholars Lab, most of which is related to graduate students. We don't we do a little bit of work with undergraduates, but we're primarily um, post baccalaureate. And uh, so, as head of graduate programs, I help 
um, shepherd people through the programs, help administer them from like an administrative standpoint, help theorize them and think about the ways that what we're doing can um, better serve the graduate student population. So that means not just like the programs themselves, but also like um, how we can find opportunities for people and advocate for them so that they're having the best possible experience that they can have while they're here. That's awesome. awesome. Yeah. So what are some of the projects that you worked on with that? Uh, in my role at the Scholars Lab? Yeah. Uh, so I have three fellowship programs that I work with most directly. They're like year-long fellowships. Uh, sometimes they're, one of them is a semester-long fellowship. So a lot of what I've been doing is trying to revamp these fellowship programs so that um, people are actually getting out of them what they should be getting out of them. So a lot of conversations with deans about revamping the financial packages so that people um, get enough money. Because the idea is that people get time and money to work on digital projects with us. Um, but, you know, to varying degrees, that's true given uh, people's particular circumstances. And so we're trying to find a set of programs that um, serves serves as many people as possible. Um, I guess I'll come back to what digital humanities is now, since I, I keep I'm dancing around it, and you might have absolutely no idea what I do. Uh, so digital humanities, uh, as we practice in the Scholars Lab, means um, research or teaching that engages with technology in some way. Uh, so I tend to think of there being two definitions of digital humanities that sort of work side by side. The one being uh, the use of technology in the pursuit of humanities questions, and the other one being humanities-based interrogations of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the projects that we have people working on with us, uh, for example, might be uh, we have someone who's doing sentiment analysis of poetry in the black arts movement right now. Cool. Um, so the idea there is how can computers um, understand and interrogate feelings or sentiment analysis uh, is what it's called. Um, like these complicated things that computers really are primarily good at counting. How can you take something that's good at counting and make it feel like understand emotions? Mm-hmm. And then um, an example of the other one might be, say, um, thinking critically about um you know, media studies more generally as like a term that's relevant. Um, so not just applying technology, but thinking critically about technology. Like what does it even mean for us to use um, technologies that can do sentiment analysis on poetry where the people were very skeptical of the very idea of putting their poems into machines and that sort of thing. Oh, interesting. So um, like that student, uh, Ethan Reed, thinks a lot about that, like that his, the authors he's studying would hate the fact that he's doing this <laughs> poetry. I'm like, what does that mean from like a, a, a theoretical and uh, mm-hmm. critical perspective? So I do that. I hope people who are interested in doing that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Great. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've brought the two of you on more or less to sort of Brandon to talk about digital humanities and Christian to talk about digital literatures um, and how those are in conversation with each other um, and the title of the episode is Digital Spaces, so I'm, I'm just going to ask both of you guys, what <laughs> what is a digital space? How do you break it down? Um, maybe Christian, we'll start with you, and then Brandon, if you have additional thoughts. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of digital spaces, um, I think technically a digital space, right, is like the actual screen on uh, computers and technology and stuff, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's a space in which um, you can see see things on the web or whatever. But the way that I kind of think about it is um, the the networks of people that are kind of created through technological applications, mm. right? So um, think of this kind of like, you know, chat rooms or whatever, you know, people getting together because of digital tools mm-hmm. and being able to talk uh, together when they're not in the same physical space. 
right? So these yeah, are kind of yeah, digital sure. spaces. Which is kind of ironic because this is our episode on digital spaces and it's our first episode in which all of our participants are present physically <laughs> in the room. <laughs> that is um, Yeah. All right. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So awesome. that's, that's kind of how I think of the, the digital spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have two responses, one that's cheeky and one that's not. Uh, one would be like, <laughs> um, like literally digital space, like something like Second Life like a virtual reality space where like, or, um, or workout or something where like you're physically navigating through particular digital spaces. And Mm -hmm. it's not like, you know, in the old days where you would be playing solo on your own computer, like in those cases, you have like whole populations of people who are moving through space, um, which is kind of like the entire premise behind ready player one or the matrix. Um, and then the other cheeky version would be that digital spaces are also physical. So like, even though, um, they might seem, you know, metaphorical or ephemeral like these are also Mm -hmm. like physical hardware spaces so like the internet archives physical like um version of their uh digital space is like in a church in california which is like pretty appropriate in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's always easy to think that like there are server farms to forget that there are like server farms that are actually you know holding up these things right there's an actual infrastructure yeah right we, we think that they're not physical but they're also that right interesting yeah, no, I never think about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, check out the, there are all sorts of videos of the tours of the Internet Archives Church that are, like, yeah. fascinating. <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, so I guess this is, um, because we're specifically talking about the public humanities, um, I'm interested in how digital technology is changing the humanities as a discipline, but also maybe how you see um, digital inflecting the public humanities Um what the relationship is there between the two. This is for both of you. you Um, So you're saying how digital is inflecting humanities and how it might be public. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess for me, it feels continuous with all the sorts of stuff that I did as an undergraduate or Mm -hmm. graduate student. Um, It just feels like digital humanities and like working with digital technologies has enabled me to ask new kinds of questions Mm -hmm. and think through new kinds of problems and new objects of study that I wouldn't have considered possible. Mm -hmm. Um, So my dissertation was on early 20th century things um, like Joyce, Elliot, Wolf, um, Langston Hughes. (laughs) 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 I forgot. And... uh, (laughs) Um, hasn't been that long, It's Brandon. been so long. But, like, when you think about um, digital objects of study, like, the, a lot of the work that I've done in the Scholar's Lab has been to, or the Scholar's Lab in my previous job, has been um, finding other data sets for people to work with mm-hmm. that are online mm-hmm. that might not be considered worthy of study. So, like, just things that people are putting out on the Internet, there's, like, just a mass of text information out there. And that seems as though it's just there, but you can pull it down and like subject that to the same sort of humanistic inquiries that mm. you would anything else that mm-hmm. you study in your graduate mm-hmm. degree. Um, and so that kind of bringing the public into the academic discourse is something that um, I've really noticed about my own work in the digital. But yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? No, I think that's, uh, that's great. And I think actually that what we're doing here mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. is a fantastic example of this, right? Mm -hmm. We're using digital tools to talk about uh, humanities problems and issues, right? Mm -hmm. So we are, in a way, engaging in uh, digital humanities scholarship right now. Woo-hoo! Yeah. Woo! Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. Uh, So why a podcast? Was that sort of the idea? (laughs) Like, you're like, we want to take these sorts of conversations and take them out into the world. 
sort of thing. Yeah, that was a large part of it, certainly. Yeah, I think we, we were both interested in um, accessibility, how mm-hmm. we could make it available to uh, the greatest number of people, and also how we could, in that sort of how we could get it out there beyond UVA. And so, because right. we had we had considered doing a public forum um, on campus, uh, a series of sort of like lectures, but the podcast seemed the best way uh, to make something that was reproducible yeah. um, and easily accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know, you're, you've been managing the website, Christian, so like, <laughs> you can you can speak to how easy it has been to actually host the podcast. Um, uh, I mean, hosting but, podcasts hasn't been a problem. Um, I mean, the website requires a lot of tinkering, but that's okay. Um, but I mean, a, a, yeah. another thing with this, and I, I think we'll see this in our next episode, right, is being able to talk to and, and converse with people who are very far away uh, mm-hmm. physically, right? So I think uh, next time we're talking with uh, Chi, who's from Vietnam, and she's she's actually in Vietnam now, um, and so and will be for yes. the episode. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. So mm-hmm. so that's that's really cool. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one thing that I would add is that so I think this is relevant to the podcast idea. Is um, for me, it's it's not just like that the digital gives you a different means of disseminating things. So it's not just that like you put the podcast up on the internet and people come to it, right? Uh, it's that in the course of making this podcast, I'm sure it's like you have to think in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. You're like having to put together your script and come up with ideas and topics mm-hmm. and conversation and things like that. And similarly, uh, over the past several years, and I've been working in digital humanities, probably the most profound shift in how I work is that it's like all public all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so like when I, whenever I teach or I'm like working and I'm thinking through a problem, I try and think about how I might reframe that for a public audience, like either in a blog or mm-hmm. gathering material, materials together so that other people can see them. And that's not something that I was necessarily thinking about during the rest of my time as a graduate student, right? Yeah. You're taught to like think of your work as this polished thing and mm-hmm. you only send it out into the world when it's gonna like give you when it's gonna positively contribute to your brand. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas uh, you know, working in the increasingly in a digital space for me has really meant just like being willing to put yourself out there, which mm-hmm. is yeah. what this is doing and I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we had thought a little bit about the sort of uh, rawness of the way that we are putting mm-hmm. these uh, podcasts out to yeah. the world. There's very little, I do very little um, trimming of our awkward pauses and like <laughs> <laughs> coughing. And, but I, I think that that adds an important element um, to the sort of texture of the scholarship that we do that is written, yeah. like you say, Brandon, where it's very, it's very polished. Um, it lacks a lot of texture or the sort of uh, versions get removed. Um, whereas... This is a you know the sort of audio version of all of the comments that I leave in my written drafts before they actually go out to the world. So sure, yeah, and I mean I, I think another really important difference is uh, that that with the digital, often um, the projects are very collaborative in nature, right? And so yeah. so even here, you know, the three of us in the room, right? Uh, versus for our our published work and stuff, which are generally single author publications. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, having that collaborative space, uh, is also, uh, I think really useful and really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just audio. We're not like videotaping so I can wear and look however <laughs> I want. <laughs> 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 great. Jokes. Okay. Um, <laughs> so how is digital technology changing the humanities in one sentence or less? It's collaborative. It's more collaborative. It's a little more raw. Yeah, more open. More open. Mm-hmm. More about visible. The, more about the process, too, yeah. I would say, which yeah. is exactly what you're saying. Like, another way of reframing, like, it being raw is that 
it's not about the end product. It's about the process of putting it together. Yeah. Uh, so like the digital humanities approach to this might be you make a podcast and then as in the course of making the podcast, you make the materials by which you're making the podcast more available. Mm -hmm. So like um, supplementary things about like how, if you wanted to start a podcast, how people would do it, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like the field that I work in, that kind of stuff is really valued. Like that kind of do it yourself. We'll show you how. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That was more of a sense. Imagine a lot of semicolons. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of Venn dashes. That's fine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I can edit you out after that whole speech on not editing things out. (laughs) (laughs) So um, in my experience, people, especially people who work in the digital humanities, tend to talk about digital technology as being unambiguously positive for the humanities and for the people um, who are engaged in these things. Uh, Maybe that's part of the branding. I don't know. But um, in your opinion, Brandon, are are there any drawbacks in relation to the humanities um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, Kathy Davidson has a really good pair of terms for this. I can't remember what it is. Kathy Davidson is a scholar in digital humanities. Kat, yeah, she's, she's an English scholar. I think she probably, she does things in digital humanities. She would probably more describe her as a scholar of herself as a scholar of uh, higher education. Okay. Um, but, um, I can't remember the actual pair of terms that she uses, but it's something along the lines of, like, there's a danger that you unambiguously adore technology, and there's mm-hmm. also the danger that you unambiguously hate technology, and, like, drifting it to either pole is, mm-hmm. like, neither one works very well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the danger of unambiguously um, adoring technology is, like, this, like, neoliberal fantasy that it's going to bring us all together, that, like, you put this out in the world and some person far and far flung areas mm-hmm. of the world where they don't have economic resources is going to be able to take it up and like become a better citizen of the world, like start their own entrepreneurial company or something, which is the sort of thing that, um, the criticism that gets lobbied at things like Coursera or, Mm. um, massive, um, I can't remember what all the letters stand for offhand, um, open online courses. Um, that's a criticism that gets levied at them. And so I think the, um, the inverse would be to say that like no good can come with technology. Um, and like, if you put these things out in the world, you're complicit in, all, in the systems of oppression just mm-hmm. by like, you know, by nature of your, like using this technology and putting it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's sort of a separate soapbox. You were asking about how it, it changes the humanities. Well, I was asking specifically about if you thought there were drawbacks to, um, mm-hmm. digital technology on the humanities. I mean, I think one, one drawback that I might point to would be, um, like um, doing the technology for its own sake. Um, Mm -hmm. So that comes up a lot when we give people consultations for digital projects or when we're working with students trying to work their way through digital projects Mm -hmm. is there's a temptation um, to sort of subscribe to the coolness factor of whatever you're doing and Mm -hmm. not, and not um, question whether or not it's actually supporting your humanities based questions because Mm -hmm. that's what really makes it digital humanities. Right. Um, an example of that might be, so my colleague in the Scholars Lab, Zoe LeBlanc, was on this great panel about the limits of network analysis at the Digital Humanities Conference in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was her. I think it was Mickey Kaufman um, from CUNY who put up a giant picture of, oh, it wasn't even her. Someone on the panel put up, they were all putting up these really fancy network visualizations, right? Mm. Which look like... Um, little circles connected with lines to other circles, mm-hmm. uh, nodes and edges. And 
they always look really fancy, and I can never tell, like, what the point of them is, necessarily, as a non-network analysis person. <laughs> uh, and that was part of their point, was, like, at one point, he, the guy, I think it was the per I can't remember his name, put the uh, a picture of a hairball on the screen and was talking about it, but had not referenced the fact that it wasn't actually a network visualization. <laughs> and then after a few moments, he was like, actually, this isn't actually a graph. This is just, like, a hairball. And so the last three slides been, and you couldn't tell, and that was part of the point. Right. Um, so the, the, I guess what I'm getting at is really that uh, the use of the technology has to further your underlying humanities questions, and if not, you're not really doing visual humanities, you're doing something entirely different. Yeah. So, uh, Christian, I don't know if you have comments on that. That's actually a really nice segue into you study digital literature, right? So yeah. authors are making use of this new technology mm -hmm. to further these humanities questions, um, maybe, that Brandon is mentioning. So could you tell us a little bit about what you do yes. when you're not here on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, so I've been looking at... Uh, kind of digital literature, right? So literature that's created on and for digital devices specifically, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, gosh, I guess about uh, a year ago or so, I um, taught a, one of the NWAR courses on, it was called post-digital writing. NWAR is English writing at UVA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And the theme was post-digital writing. And so we were looking at, like, hypertext fiction, Twitter literature, mm -hmm. this kind of stuff, right? Um, so... Yeah, uh, Twitter literature, I've I've been working, one of my chapters for my dissertation is on uh, Teju Cole and some of his stuff, like half is, mm -hmm. um, and what he's been producing there. Um, but there are also some some other really cool apps that I've uh, been wasting my time. I'm not wasting my time, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, one is called Tap, and it hosts uh, stories using a texting format. Hmm. Right, so they're they're written as texts, right? And when you hit the screen, a new text will appear, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like a conversation between multiple people, and often those are like they're really short. It's like a lot of them are like horror stories, <laughs> kind of fun. Mm -hmm. um, and there's there's another one that I just discovered actually. It's called oh, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Ulipo, um, but it's an app that publishes stories that are uh, designed specifically to be read on your phone in like 15 minute, um, mm -hmm. increments, right? And so they're, they're these little episodes and they incorporate images, videos, animation, this kind of stuff. Huh. So yeah, like using technology to do different things with storytelling. Right. Um, it's some really cool stuff that's coming out of this. That's yeah. awesome. And Ulupo, a reference to Ulupo poetry, I would expect. Oh, Pro um, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, so then how does that digital literature differ mm -hmm from more traditional forms of literary dissemination? Oh, that's a good uh, question. And I um, talk about publishing, too, which is yeah. one of my interests. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah no, I, this, is, this is a great question. Um, so, obviously, the publication well, method... <laughs> 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 um, but, yeah, obviously, publication method is different, right? Um, and one of the, the main things... Um, Teju Cole actually has a, has a great quote on this, which I don't have in front of me, but... Um, he basically, uh, Teju Cole has published things, um, I, I mean, he, he's a well-known author, um, mm -hmm. and he's, he's published stuff both on Twitter and in more traditional forms, right? And he's basically said that, look, you know, like, each of these uh, methods of publication reaches a different kind of audience, mm -hmm. right? Um, so it, the way that the publishing industry controls essentially what books kind of get out in the public forum, mm -hmm. um, you don't have that with digital spaces necessarily, mm -hmm. right? Um, especially with a lot of the self-publishing self that can go on um, online. 
And also, again, if you're using like Twitter or something to, to create stories, that's available for anyone who has a Twitter account, right? Right. Um, so yeah, publication method, um, definitely different. And that also opens up these new networks, right? Uh, so again, like, um, whereas a, a paperback would be limited to wherever it's distributed, right? On Twitter, anyone who has Twitter around the world can access that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so also some interesting things going on in terms of translation with this, because Twitter also has like a, a translation center, I mean, anyone can contribute to translations, and basically if there's a, a tweet in a different language um, and someone has decided to translate it, there will be a little globe that shows up below huh. the tweet, and you can click on it, and it will automatically translate it into uh, whatever language, cool. right? So, so yeah, um, production, dissemination, all this stuff is is really changing because of these digital spaces, right? Yeah, yeah. that's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess my follow-up question then is the same one that I pitched at Brandon earlier. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. what are the drawbacks to these, um, to digital lit? I mean, it, it seems like a very democratic idea that we would we would bypass, let's say, the publisher in this case entirely mm-hmm. um, and publish these things. Um, do you see, do, what drawbacks do you see, um, if any, yeah. in this more global system? Yeah. Uh, so... One of the things that, that a number of people have been worried about, I suppose, are the the lack of barriers and this being an issue, mm-hmm. right? Because anyone can publish anything and therefore how do we know what's of value and what's not, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more stuff to sift through. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, people are still working on how to deal with this. There have mm-hmm. been some online sites and stuff that have come up um, that, that are trying to kind of rate some of these things. Um, and some of these online stories. So they but, have sort of an alternative metric system for no, see, see that's that's part of it. They okay. don't really have a different metric system right now. Okay. Um, and so so this is still trying to be developed and everything. And of course, right. it's it's not really possible to read through everything that is published online. Sure. Right? Um, so anyway, that's still a work in progress. Um, yeah, that's that's one of the main drawbacks. There's there's something else, and that's one of the reasons it? why peer review journals. Yes. Work. Yes. Uh, traditionally, because they limit the amount of content that mm-hmm. goes out, so they not only control the value of the page because each page has you know a value to it, but they also right. can control in terms of the work. Like there are right. only X number of things that get published, mm-hmm. and so we only have to evaluate X number of things. Um, I used to work for um, an open access journal called Plus One, which is a science journal, and <laughs> Plus One used to publish everything that was merited to be technically sound. And the idea was that post-publication, the readers um, would sort of determine the value of uh, what was published that was technically sound by virtue of this commenting system that they had developed. So Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it was sort of like overturning the idea that um, the publisher would determine the impact that something would have because right. how is a publisher supposed to know what will impact the future right. Right. and sort of letting letting the future determine uh, the impact as you know, they saw fit. So yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's great. And Brendan, I know your dissertation was on like sound stuff, and and you use some technology in there and stuff. Uh, do you want to kind of weigh in on this? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, one thing I was, um, one thing that my dissertation was about was about you know the ways in which 
it wasn't necessarily about new digital literature, but it was mm-hmm. about the ways in which literature gets mediated and remediated over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was on sound recordings and um, audiobooks and cool. sound technology and the kinds <laughs> of communities. So the ways that that shows up in literature and then the kinds of sound recordings that get made of literary texts and the communities that form around them. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had to get that elevator, elevator pitch in a while. Did you look at LibriVox? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to talk about. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I did a lot of work with this... Um, audiobook website called LibriVox, which gives, uh, it's a space where people can record um, audiobooks of public domain texts. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that was really interesting to me was that they have these internet forums, right, where um, they chronicle all the different correspondence about the audiobooks as they're recording them. So they're organized like by project. So it would be like Ulysses Audiobook One would have a, a forum and then... Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, To the Lighthouse would have, that's too late to be recorded, but uh, would theoretically have its own forum. And uh, it's sort of like having all of the email correspondence that you guys have about this podcast. Like, they're all having these in public on these forums. Anyone can go look at them. Mm, Interesting, yeah. Um, So one of the things that really interested me was, like, the ways in which um, people are constituting and reconstituting themselves as a community through these forums around these materials. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's sort of like peeling back the layer and saying, like, this this digital literature is not just the product of one person. This audiobook is the product of many hands, and like, how are these people all talking about themselves together? And it's just like this really these really moving descriptions of the collaborative process. So people in uh, Montreal, New York, Japan, Ireland, all talking about how they're going to meet up on a particular day to talk about recording Ulysses together and like read together in a bar. Um, in I think that's one thing maybe that uh, I'd like to see more people think about. That was part of the point of the dissertation was like we need we should be paying more attention to all the different amateur readers taking part in these literary yeah. processes. Um, I actually listened to the last book of Ulysses uh, using LibriVox on a, a really trafficy drive back to Charlottesville from Thanksgiving break, mm-hmm. and I I thought I was going to go insane. Is this the <laughs> experimental one? Yes, yeah, that's the one I where read about, all yeah. of the voices are coming in and out. It's, it's I love it. I was sitting there in traffic, like, it's just the voices inside my mind. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. This was for Penelope? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they, they were. So it's like, not only is it a difficult stream of, of text to follow in your right. head, but there were different voices coming in as they were reading, and sometimes Ooh. they were reading the same thing, and sometimes they were yeah. overlapping. Oh my or, gosh. So that was, so that was, it was one of the first, I think maybe like the first 100, maybe like the 40th recording they made. And so they didn't really have all of their protocols and like kinks worked out yet. And so they were like, this would be fun. Let's just, like, experiment with it and see what we can do. And so each chapter is, like, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that's the one that's, like, the most experimental. But the other mm-hmm. ones, like, they'll have improvisatory, like, fiddle in the background mm-hmm. while someone cool. while they're reading the text. <laughs> um, I, it's great. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't help but feel that Joyce would actually really appreciate this. So. Yeah. And, I mean, part of the, the way they talk about it, this is, like, the argument of the chapter. <laughs> uh, but part of the idea was... And that comes out in the forums is that they didn't really care about people uh, mm-hmm. reading it. They cared about the volunteers who were recording it, and they were, or they didn't care about the author. They cared about the listeners and the volunteers. I see. Yeah. So that they're they're saying their primary uh, mission is really just to um, you know think about uh, this act of recording together as really this event that happens um, that's really important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's great. I haven't actually listened to the whole thing. I think it's great as an idea. I can imagine that it would drive you nuts. 
Yeah, I, it was the combination of just like of being on the road for many hours, and I and Penelope section I think maybe lends itself to that, but also it's like I don't know, it was it was a lot for the car. Well, I, mean, I mean, to get back to your question about like what digital literature is, it's I think part of the idea is that people were really upset with this recording because they're expecting it to just be a clean version of the text that mm-hmm. you can understand, mm-hmm. but it's like a piece of performance art. If they're trying, they're doing, oh, they're carrying out interpretations on absolutely. the text as they're doing it. Yeah. Um, and the point was not to disseminate clearly the text that I was intending yeah. to listen to in lieu of reading. They recorded, <laughs> for they class. recorded a, a second version. <laughs> oh, they did? Oh. Clean. Yeah. 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 <laughs> They also said they were going to record a new version every year. Oh. But they were way behind. <laughs> and, and you can pick which version you want to... Yeah. yeah. I think they have, like, they recorded two completely, and they're in the process of doing their third one. Because I think the, the third oh, one, I think, wow. now is um, a full cast one, like they do for certain yeah. recordings. Wow. Well, Thanksgiving is coming up again, so I can, like, <laughs> I can do round two try. you got time. I have, yeah, <laughs> to do it again. <laughs> the voices inside my mind on 29. Yeah. <laughs> um, Christian, I do want to touch on um, world literature um, mm-hmm. because your research is um, specifically digital literature and world literature yeah. related. So um, can you tell us a little bit about those two things? Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the basic idea is that world literature, uh, we need a new definition of world literature that takes into account uh, Mm -hmm. digital literature and these digital spaces, right? Mm -hmm. Because this digital literature isn't bound by um, nationality, right? A nation, um, state, whatever. Uh, A lot of these political political boundaries aren't there. Mm -hmm. So there is this, there are these new circulating spaces, Ah, right. Um, <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so that that means that the way that we conceive of the world, rather than it being, you know, divided into these these national um, mm-hmm. nations, right? Um, it, it circulates in a different way, mm-hmm. right? In this literature. So anyway, that's that's the basic idea. Just trying to redefine world literature, given that um, there has been this expansion in digital literature. Mm-hmm. So do you have a, a short definition of world literature, given this expansion? Is it simply circulating spaces? Uh, no. I, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? Let me finish writing my dissertation, and I will get back we'll to you. Come back to you. But before yeah. we go away from you, you just you just gave a TED Talk, is that correct? Oh, yes. I, I have to ask, because I'm just so curious. You're, like, you're working on world literature and digital spaces but you also just gave a ted talk on robotics and so yeah that must be talked about oh man um yeah so it's a tedx talk at the tedx charlottesville and yeah it was on robots and and really the relationship between robotics and the humanities right and i can i can post a link to the video once it comes out but um i've been working with um a computer engineer over in the the UVA engineering department, mm-hmm. uh, which has been a lot of fun. And, um, he helped me, uh, with, with this too, with the TEDx talk and he helped me program, um, one of the now robots that they have in yeah. the engineering department. And the now robot did some Tai Chi on the, Dang. on the stage, which is great. So, <laughs> that's um, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, even the, that relationship between robotics and humanities is super interesting, partly because, the humanities really anticipated the field of robotics, right? Um, it was a, 
uh, Karl Čepek, um, a Czech writer who even invented the word robot. Right. Right. Um, and then it was like there were a bunch of movies, films, um, plays, uh, sci-fi hmm. that happened before robotics was even taken seriously as a field of study, which really didn't happen until the late 1970s early 1980s, hmm. right, um, which is quite recent, yeah. um, given that the, the term robot was uh, invented in, like, 1920. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really interesting relationship there. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, and that's something, I mean, something that we think about, I guess, in, in terms of fiction, that it, mm-hmm. that it can anticipate in these sort of, like, thought labs yeah. that are fiction, uh, <laughs> things that don't exist yet in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, Every day I feel more and more obsolete. <laughs> um, and I, I want to ask you guys, um, the, big qu- the big question, is digital the future of the humanities? Um, I'm here as a sort of like <laughs> Luddite, I guess, of the, of the three of you because I, I don't know how to code. I can't make a robot do Tai Chi on a stage. <laughs> um, I just learned things like bookmarking and like an embarrassingly recent time frame. So, so it's a shockingly short time ago. Um, and it's revolutionized the way that I organize things on my computer. So is this the future? If so, yes. What, how do you, how do I save myself from being lost in bookmarking? And that's the end of it. Uh, I think I would say it's a future, but it doesn't have to be the only future. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think if you look back at the history of media, like media forms tend to be additive rather than replacing. Um, I mean, record record players are still around. People still have them. They're like go in and out of vogue depending on, um, people's interest in them. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're the dominant force in the market, but they continue to be around. Um, and in a similar way, like, I don't think that just because, you have these digital means of examining new questions that the old questions are obsolete or that they're necessarily shut out of the conversation at all. I think it's just sort of like a, I don't think it needs to be a zero sum game where there's only so much like humanities to go around. (laughs) I think there's plenty of it. uh, And uh, the old questions will have new life and the new questions will continue to speak in old ways. Mm. ways that turn of phrase didn't make any sense. But, <laughs> but it sounded poetic. <laughs> yeah. It got away from me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's a great way of putting it. And uh, Alison Booth, who's on my uh, committee, actually, she put it um, like this. She said that, you know, in order to be a good digital humanist, you have to be a good humanist first, right? And you, and you have to really know your field. So, uh, I mean, I would just reiterate that, that the digital at least in, in this respect, seems to be kind of additive, right? You can't just learn digital humanities. You have to learn um, a lot mm-hmm. more than mm-hmm. just that, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. Strictly st- speaking, though, from a, a technology standpoint, though, like, we don't use scrolls anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we have moved beyond scroll technology to the codex. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I'm talking, like, over large swaths of time, mm-hmm. right? Um, like a thousand years, kind of. So... I mean, I, there is there is a world in which the book might no longer be um, the technology uh, that we use on the day to day. Just like we, I mean, you can use a scroll. I'm sure someone has done it, right? <laughs> but the using of that 
technology would be a sort of statement in and of itself. Yeah, Whereas yeah. right now, the codex, I think, still is still the sort of standard mm-hmm. piece of technology. Um, and these are it's a transi- transitional moment. So yeah. I don't know. I, I just I wonder for my own research how uh, digital spaces as a as a form will change the way that we um, architecture tech not like knowledge and technology. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I mean I, I don't really have an answer for you, but predict one- the future, Christian. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> uh, no, one of the things that I've been thinking about with this is the way that um, technology does. So, so it starts by looking at these earlier forms, mm. right? And so um, some of the, the early ways that, that books have been put online and stuff is trying to treat the screen as a page, mm-hmm. which you can do so much more with it, right? Mm. Um, so you can scroll on this. You can bring back the scroll, right? Like, hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and with images and sounds <laughs> and stuff. So um, people are, are experimenting a lot more with... Um, the affordances of the screen mm-hmm. and of these technologies, but it did start off as trying to imitate sure. the book itself. Sure. So I don't know. I'm I'm just still fascinated by this this transition, and as we as we continue to see it happen here. Yeah. Yeah, I would say too that the uh, the question of like platforms and technology mm-hmm. and the phenomenological experience of those mm-hmm. platforms is separate from like the question of the humanities based you know, thinking that goes into them and comes out of them. So, mm-hmm. like, uh, it might be the case that the scroll might disappear because something else is better for doing scroll-like things. <laughs> but <laughs> right. uh, that doesn't uh, mean that, like, the modes of thinking that the scroll enables will disappear entirely, you know. Um, like, I think it's a... It's... I mean, it's certainly a vision of the humanities to say that, like, when something earth-shattering comes about, that whatever you were thinking about before mm-hmm. ceases to be relevant or exists. But I, just, I don't really think that that's a tenable view of, like, how we move through the world. Yeah. Um, I think, if anything, you know, it enlivens old conversations again. Yeah. I'm just here for functionality, Brandon. If the codex is easier to put in my pocket than the scroll, I'm there. If the phone <laughs> is easier to put in my pocket, I'm there. Which is not entirely true because I still carry around Infinite Jest like in my carry-on suitcase. <laughs> and my suitcase is no longer um, a stable unit. It like now just tips oh, over man. all the time because I've got too many books in the front pocket. So. <laughs> okay. nice. I remember Michael Levinson told me that he, he started reading Infinite Jest on his phone. Mm-hmm. I, the second time around, I think. I think the first oh, time oh, was it around. Time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. I haven't looked at the... Um, ebook for that but i don't really know how how the end notes would work for that mm, yeah. things to look into mm. yeah yeah in some ways it'd be easier right to you pick, hit a button and it pops you there instead of having to flip right but yeah. sometimes the the end notes are is that the point it's in like the middle of a sentence <laughs> yeah. and so like you'd have to like you'd have to choose like am i going to finish the sentence am i gonna uh, like yeah. i don't know sometimes i work in really arbitrary ways like oh if the sentence runs onto a new page like i shall not enter that page until <laughs> i've read the end note i mean yeah. it reminds me of a house of leaves like daniel Luskey. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. he's someone who does some more things with like notes pointing he's like really invested in the idea of the, the codex as a thing and like the yeah. media form and like yeah, how yeah. you navigate it but then yeah. he also does a lot of uh, electronic literature and yeah. like digital, like born digital things for Kindle and um, you know iBook and things like that. Where like mm-hmm. the experience of the reading app is as much a part of it. So he's like, mm-hmm. he would probably say like the book is just one in a series of things that I can experiment with. Totally. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, this might be apocrypha, but I have heard that he actually did the typesetting himself for House of Leaves because mm-hmm. he did not trust the publisher to do it. Uh, which kind of makes sense when you're when you're when your text is so crucially focused on exactly how the word yeah. fits onto the page um, mm-hmm. or doesn't in some some instances. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I like I've been talking a lot and asking questions. So do you guys, do you want to ask each other things? Brandon, do you have any questions for us? Um, I'm glad you guys are doing this. That's great. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> yeah. Christian? Uh, Brandon, do you have reading recommendations for us? Oh, God. <laughs> it's my just, favorite time of the podcast. Uh, just in general about anything or about the stuff we've been talking about? Uh, specifically about the stuff we've been talking about, and then if you want to broaden it a little bit. Um, uh, the LA Review of Books has a series on digital humanities. I think it's oh, called The Digital and the Humanities. They interview like eight people. Oh, cool. A lot of them are can be infuriating at times, but they um, <laughs> because it's clear that they have a certain a certain agenda I behind see. their interview series and the kinds of questions that they're asking. Gotcha. That's pretty critical of the whole idea <laughs> of the project um, being digital humanities. But they interview some really good people, and so to hear good people talk about this sort of stuff that could be a good place to start. The Brown Public uh, Humanities Center. Um, Jim McGrath is their postdoc there. He has a lot of really good projects on um, engaging, you know, the public and the digital work that you do. Um, Yeah, those would maybe be my two. Does that help at all? Yeah, no, that's (laughs) great. The LA Review of Books put out, that was, they put out the really incendiary uh, article last year. Okay, yeah. It it was a series of like eight interviews, and that came out between like interviews six and seven or something like that. Okay. Yeah, our, that got that made quite a splash um, mm-hmm. because it was so pugnacious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Christian, do you have Rex for us? Yeah, sure. Um, so, if you want to look at hypertext, uh, "The Jew's Daughter" by Judd Morrissey, that's a good one. Um, also, Shelley Jackson has done a lot of this stuff, right? Cool. Um, so, and, and some of this is older from like the 90s right like patchwork girl um my mm-hmm. body yeah right jennifer egan has done some stuff with twitter have um, you have you speaking of jennifer yeah. egan checked out the new i have not novel yet no, it's on I my haven't. like must read over break list yeah yeah, What's it called? yeah. i don't know <laughs> <laughs> let it in <laughs> okay. um but yeah so black box is her um twitter piece um mm. I, kind of along these lines as well right so literature that incorporates other forms of technology. So, um, like Jennifer Egan's um, other novel. The Goon name. Squad. Yeah. Visit. Yeah. yeah. Visit from the Goon Squad, yeah. right? Where she has like a PowerPoint presentation mm-hmm. in the back of the book or something. Yeah. It's like um, the most moving thing that you've ever read. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, stuff like that. Um, also, again, like check out Tap and Ulipo. Great, fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Brandon. Yeah. Time always flies when I'm doing these things. Yeah. Uh, I'm like looking at I'm looking at our timer go by and thinking like, oh man, where the where it happened. Um, and Christian, it's it's always a pleasure to hear about what you're doing um, with your work. So, Brandon, how can listeners get in touch with you if they have more questions or want to uh, talk more? I'm on Twitter at WalshBR, and WalshBR.com is my website. You can also find me on the Scholars Labs website, though, if you want to shoot me an email. Cool. And Christian? 
Yep. Uh, you can find me online um, on our website and stuff. We've got my my email address Contact up there info. and everything. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> please send questions. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Thank you to our listeners. For those of you who want more information or would like to subscribe to our podcast channel, please visit our incredibly long website. It's my favorite part of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Pages.shanti, S-H-A-N-T-I, dot Virginia, dot E-D-U, slash circulating underscore spaces, slash. Backslash. Backslash. Yeah. 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 And in our next episode, um, this will happen after the holidays, we're talking with La'a Lin Chi about the task of a translator. Yeah, and as I mentioned earlier, she's a friend from Vietnam, and she'll be talking about the difficulties of translating between English and Vietnamese, which are really vastly different languages. Super cool. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone, and talk to you later. What does Keanu Reeves sound like? He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not cat. It's not, what is he saying? <laughs> He's like... It's not a baby, it's cans. It's cans. Now she's hit a um, oh, yeah. shopping cart yeah, yeah. with a baby in it, but in fact it's a ba- uh, shopping cart full of cans. And they go back and forth, cans, baby, cans, baby, cans, baby, like six, seven times. <laughs> I hope you edit this out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this, yeah, no, this will go at the end, like the blooper section. We should have one of those. Okay. <laughs> it's cans. The baby is cans. <laughs>